Wow, that was really, really nice. You know who that was? That was Paul Pelosi yeah. making his first public appearance at the Kennedy Center since being attacked in his home. It's good to see him up and about and doing well. Right. What a great night. Yeah, That's great where our BFF Caitlin was. Yeah, we're going to have That's more on that. That's where she gets the day off. Just, I know, more yeah. on that in just a moment. The biggest honor straight ahead. Good morning, everyone. As she said, Caitlin she, is on assignment. Did you have she a good is. weekend? I had a great weekend, and she's going to be for us in Georgia for the big election day. I had a great weekend. The Vikings beat the Jets. Sorry, guys. The whole crew here. <laughs> the whole crew here loves the Jets. Early in the morning. The sun's not even up yet, and you're rubbing <laughs> it in. That's all I care about. Oh, my Wait, God. Wait, I know we got to go, but Sienna, my daughter, six years old, starts yeah. rooting for the New York Jets in the middle of the game. And I, I said, heard. what are you doing? You're from Minnesota. Mom, she said, I was born in New York. Born in New York. <laughs> she gets it. Forget it. We have a lot to get to this morning, including this. Uh, there is a manhunt that is underway after a power grid has attacked tens of thousands without power, and the FBI is now involved. And, as we mentioned, Georgia, countdown to Election Day, Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker making their final pitches to voters ahead of tomorrow's runoff election. We are live in Atlanta. Plus this. It has no ability to suspend the Constitution. I certainly don't uh, endorse uh, that language or uh, that sentiment. A few Republican lawmakers rebuking Trump after he called for a termination of the Constitution. So why are top GOP leaders still silent? Again, as we said, a lot to get to this morning. But first this morning, the FBI is joining the investigation into power outages in North Carolina. And officials say were caused by intentional and targeted attacks. More than 35,000 customers are waking up without power after gunfire left two substations damaged. This was a terrible act, and it appears to be an intentional, willful, and malicious act. And the perpetrator uh, will be brought to justice and prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. So a mandatory curfew overnight was lifted in the last hour. CNN's Whitney Wild is on the ground in, in Moore County, and because of the power outages, she couldn't get to a live signal, so she filed this report just moments ago. Here it is. At this point, there is a lot more we don't know than a lot more we do know. Uh, law enforcement here saying that the FBI is involved as well as the State Bureau of Investigation. Right now, all that they can say is that these two substations sustained gunfire. They also know that one of the gates leading into at least one of those substations appears to have been taken off the hinges. As far as the motive goes, law enforcement cannot say what the reason is. There had been some talk on social media that this may have been somehow connected to a drag show. It's somewhere in Moore County. However, law enforcement cannot say that that's the motive right now until they're able to figure out who did this. And they say they have really no idea at this point who did this. The motive is going to be extremely difficult to figure out. Uh, meanwhile, here in Moore County, schools are closed until uh, at least tomorrow. Again, more than 40,000 people are without power. The likelihood here is that power won't be restored until Thursday. Whitney Wild, Moore County. That was Whitney Wild reporting from Moore County. And so we think we're going to keep in touch and we'll update you on this situation. Poppy? Also, they are almost at the finish line. Incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker making their final pitches today to voters in Georgia ahead of tomorrow's runoff election. More than 1.8 million people have already voted early in this runoff. It's a huge number. Let's go to our colleague, Diane Gallagher. She joins us in Atlanta. Diane, good morning. Um, really, you've got two starkly different visions and contenders head to head. What can you tell us? 
You know, Poppy, the key for both of these candidates is going to be getting the millions of people who haven't voted yet to show up to the polls tomorrow. Both campaigns acknowledging that old political adage, it may all come down to turnout, could actually prove true in Georgia on Tuesday. Are you ready to win this election? Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and his Republican challenger, Herschel Walker, spending the closing days of their runoff campaign getting out what's left of the vote. If you don't have a friend, go make a friend and get them out to vote. With more than 1.85 million ballots already cast, the incumbent Democrat warning supporters not to leave anything on the field. We are on the verge of victory. But I don't want us to do the victory dance before we actually get into the end zone. Warnock leaning on his Senate record and sharpening his criticism of Walker's fitness for office and personal background. He was an amazing running back. And he will need those skills because come Tuesday, we're going to send him running back to Texas where he actually lives. Walker, a Georgia football legend, taking advantage of the Bulldogs playing the SEC championship game in Atlanta, meeting fans at a tailgate on Saturday, but playing the role of underdog on Sunday, calling out his opponent's fundraising advantage as fueled by out-of-state money. Most of his money comes from California or New York, don't even come from Georgia. Walker has made tying Warnock to President Biden central to his closing argument. Our president was in Massachusetts. He was campaigning for Senator Warnock, who lives in Georgia, because of the way Senator Warnock votes. He thought he was a Massachusetts senator. As the remaining days turn into just hours, in an election-fatigued state where they're asking for votes once again. The whole world is watching Georgia one more time. Yes, they are. And look, both campaigns have approached the runoff period very differently. Senator Warnock is going to continue that aggressive schedule with several stops today around Atlanta. Herschel Walker's had a much lighter schedule, but he is supercharging things today with five different events around the state to get his closing message out there. Poppy? Okay, Diane, thank you for the reporting very much live from Atlanta. And tensions rising in Iran after conflicting claims from its government. The Iranian attorney general says they are reviewing the mandatory hijab law for women and claims the so-called morality police have been abolished. But state media has pushed back on reports that the morality police have been eliminated. In response, protesters are calling for a three-day strike this week. Here's how the U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken reacted. That's up to the Iranian people. This is about them. Uh, it's not about us. And what we've seen since the killing of Masa Amini has been the extraordinary courage of Iranian young people, especially women, who've been leading these protests, standing up uh, for the right to be able to say what they want to say, wear what they want to wear. Uh, and so if the regime has now responded in some fashion to those protests, uh, that could be a positive thing. But we have to see how it actually plays out in practice and what the Iranian people think. This is about them and it's up to them. Straight now to scene is Melissa Bell, live for us in Paris. Hello to you, Melissa. Who can we believe here? Good morning, Don. It is as ever the opacity of this regime, the fact that independent journalists can't function within the country that makes it extremely difficult to read what's going on. And I think we have to treat very cautiously the words even of the Attorney General. As you say, a series of remarks confirming that the mandatory hijab law is under review. That was the first thing that we heard on Thursday, with no suggestion, by the way, Don, about which way that's going to go, a relaxing or a tightening. But it was his remarks on Saturday in response to a reporter who asked whether the morality police that enforces it was going to be disbanded uh, that really led 
to that speculation that that might be the case or part of that review. What he said uh, exactly, more particularly, was that it was not uh, uh, something for the judiciary, uh, but that it was disbanded from the place it had been launched. Now, that would be the Interior Ministry, who for now has not got back to CNN and either confirmed or denied that that's the case. And as you say, state media rather pushing back on the suggestion that that's even under consideration, Don. So, Melissa, there are, are there any way that the quantity of how important the overturning, the, to quantify, I should say, how important overturning this hijab law would be for Iran, especially the women there? I think, Don, it would be a huge concession towards uh, the protests because it's been such a fundamental demand. It was, of course, before these protests began and the death of Masa Amini, an important symbol of the impression of women inside the country. Since then, it's become even more so. All those images, Don, of women taking them off, burning them, cutting their hair, that's become uh, the symbol of what it's about. But I think it's important to note as well that even if that were to happen, and for now we just don't know, it's unlikely that would calm things down. If anything, what we've seen over the course of the now nearly three months of protest is these demands morph and become about much more than the rights of women. It's become a series of protests about poverty, about corruption, about the brutality of the prison and judiciary system, mm -hmm. and in fact about the iron fist with which the regime has ruled Iran since the 1979 Islamic Revolution. Yeah, right on. Thank you, Melissa Bell. Appreciate it. And now this. Well, now, who are the people in your neighborhood, in your neighborhood, in your neighborhood? That song, right? It brings back <laughs> so many great memories. Many of us remember Bob McGrath. We grew up with him as an original cast member on Sesame Street. Well, he died yesterday. He starred in the show's 1969 pilot. He was a regular fixture on Sesame Street for nearly five decades as the friendly neighbor Bob Johnson alongside Big Bird and a host of beloved other Muppets. Sesame uh, Workshop shared a statement on social media saying that he embodies the melodies of Sesame Street like no one else and his performances brought joy and wonder to generations of children around the world. Bob McGrath was 90 years old. Ahead, Roscoe Orman, who played the beloved character Gordon on Sesame Street, will join us live in studio. He's remembering Bob, who he calls a sweet, gentle soul. Oh. Well, stars gathering at the 45th Kennedy Center Honors in our nation's capital last night. Also in attendance, the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul. You can see him there, his first public appearance since the October attack in his San Francisco home. The audience cheering him on, President Joe Biden pumping up his fist in support. And ahead of the event, the president welcomed this year's honorees to the White House. They included George Clooney, U2, and Gladys Knight. Watch this. Everywhere you turn in Nashville, you see Amy's Fellowship, established musical therapy at a children's hospital for veterans struggling with the wounds of war, playing benefit concerts for a long list of worthy causes. Amy calls music a soul-enlarging experience. He's Gladys, your voice, your voice has spoken to what breaks our hearts, what tears us apart, what lifts our spirits, what brings us together, what makes us human. 
Gladys, you're truly one of the best things ever happened to any of us. She became one of the most important classical composers and conductors of our time. During the Civil Rights Movement, she co-founded the Dance Theater in Harlem, the country's first black classical ballet company. She also conducted the world-renowned New York Philharmonic and worked with the Brooklyn Philharmonic to bring classical music beyond concert halls into city neighborhoods. From Sunday, Bloody Sunday, to Pride in the Name of Love, to Ordinary Love, to One, the U2 has spoken and sung about the unspeakable costs of hate and anger and division. We have to remember today, as our song goes, we are one, but we're not the same. We get to carry each other. From this Irish-American president in the White House designed by Irish hands who built this and designed it, I want to thank you, too, for all you've done and the way you lift people up. Explore, Dr. Stone requesting faster transport to Bay Area. Explore, do you copy? Explore, permission to retrieve Dr. Stone. You're a go for He travels to war zones to end genocides and war crimes, exposes war profiteers, helps refugees and advances the rights of journalists, raises millions of dollars to support 9-11 first responders, victims of national disaster, and advocates, and advocates who, along with him, are combating hate. We see character. We see Amal Clooney's husband. <laughs> that is right, Amal Clooney's husband. Line. Yeah, it was good. It's so many great, great people honored. And every time I hear Gladys Knight's voice, it just puts me in a mood. It is a mood, right? Yeah, and I love, I love how President Biden at the end uh, quoted U2 lyrics. The CNN right this morning says, slightly misquoting U2. <laughs> but he says, one life, but we're not the same. And he's talking about unity yeah. and just hoping whatever can bring us together is so needed right now. Amen to that, right? Amen to Amen that. To it was that. a great night. Yeah. Speaking of up next, Donald Trump taking his calls to overturn the 2020 election to an anti-democratic new low. Plus. I'm the police chief in Tampa. Oh, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Okay. I'm hoping that you'll just let us go. Yikes. Yeah. Trying to use her position to get out of something? Well, why Tampa's police chief is in trouble this morning for doing just that during a traffic stop. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well... The former president, Donald Trump, and a current candidate to return as leader of the free world, so this is very newsworthy and noteworthy this morning, is calling to terminate the Constitution. Seriously, the centerpiece of American democracy. In order to overturn the 2020 election and be reinstated to power, the job, of course, hinges upon upholding the Constitution, something he swore on when he became president and something he touted throughout his four-year term. Let's remind you of that. We're supposed to protect our country, support our country, support our Constitution, and protect our Constitution. 
In this great chamber, we preserve our glorious inheritance, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. As President, I have no higher duty than to defend the laws and the Constitution of the United States. If you believe in justice, if you believe in freedom, if you believe in peace, then you must cherish the principles of our founding and the text of our Constitution. It's we will support, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. We believe in the American Constitution, and we believe in the rule of law. I stand before you today on the heels of a tremendous victory for our nation, our people, and our beloved Constitution. Beloved Constitution, House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy, who could be the next speaker, hasn't said anything about Trump's calls to terminate the Constitution. At least he hasn't said anything yet. But he has said that on the first day of the Republican-led Congress next year, they will read every single word of the Constitution, something Don reminded me of this morning. Joining us now, CNN senior political analyst John Avalon, CNN anchor and correspondent Audie Cornish. Thank you uh, both for being here. <laughs> I was actually speechless. I was speechless when I read it, and then watching Republicans try to respond to it on the, the Sunday shows, and some really came out, I think, in an important way and said that's basically ridiculous. Yeah. You Which have a table stakes for constitutional sure. conservatives. Right. I mean, that's sure. kind of Thank required you. to be one. You have an interesting <laughs> take that you think this is a response to his huge loss in the 11th Circuit last week. It is, but I've been thinking a little more, and I think I'm, I'm glad you played the January 6th clip because that was a, a good example of Trump doing what he means. There's this whole idea of, do you take Trump literally or seriously? I think we all know now that he says what he means and when he says these things, to believe it. One of the sort of memos that was unearthed after January 6th revealed that he had a plan to um, potentially seize voting machines, have the defense secretary go after voting machines. So this is some, this kind of language and way of speaking, it goes beyond rhetoric. That That's sort of my takeaway at this point. Yeah. You had an interesting reaction to what you said, January 6th, they play January 6th, right? When, when we were. Well, I think beginning that mashup at January 6th just reminds you that people can invoke the Constitution while they're trying to shred it. Mm. Um, and and, and th look, you know, the reason this matters more than just a typical Trump bleat on, on, on Trump, on Truth Social, isn't just that he's running for president, it's that the people who are still supporting him are backing this. Right. You can't do the separation anymore and say, well, listen to what he watch what he does. Don't listen to what he says. You know, don't take yeah. him seriously. Not literally all that. No, you can't say I support the policies, not the person. If you're you back a lot of this, that on the Sunday show, a lot of that. Yeah. So if you're backing Donald Trump today, this is what you are backing. And you automatically give up any right to call yourself a constitutional conservative. Yeah. Well, this is candidate you're backing is threatened to destroy it. I just want to read this again, because you, as you said, Kevin McCarthy hasn't said anything. And there were people, mm -hmm. I, I think there were too few Republicans who were saying there were some, yeah. but there were too few Republicans who were saying, and then Kevin McCarthy said, on the very first day of the new Republican-led Congress, we will read every single word of the Constitution aloud from the floor of the House, something that hasn't been done in years. Yeah, which that's is, from a week ago, and it sounds like he knows it needs to be done, yeah. because uh, the leader of the party doesn't really believe in it. Um, you know, one thing to think about is we're talking about high-level Republicans, establishment Republicans, 
Americans and how they respond. If you sort through the sort of conspiracy patois of who Trump's trying to signal, one of the things they believe is that the elites collude to undermine the Constitution and have subverted the election. If you believe this entire line of thinking and go all the way down the rabbit hole, then what he says on Truth Social is perfectly in line with your worldview. Mm -hmm. That something has been done, it's corrupt, and therefore you should by any means necessary, as we mm -hmm. learned on January 6th, seek to correct it. Let's listen, uh, guys, for a moment, just to we'll have some Republican lawmakers Great. responded on the Sunday shows. Here they were. Well, obviously, I don't support that. Uh, the Constitution is set for a reason uh, to protect the rights uh, of every American. And so I certainly don't uh, endorse uh, that language or uh, that sentiment. It's certainly not consistent with the oath that we all take. First of all, I vehemently disagree with, uh, with the statement that, that Trump has made. You've got to accept uh, exact fact from fantasy, and fantasy is that the, we're going to suspend the Constitution and go backwards. We're moving forward. What's also interesting, John, you heard in the Trump mashup we played where he focused on the text of the Constitution. This Constitution is so important to the textualists that Trump wants to see win in the Supreme Court constantly, right? Just yeah. all of it. Yeah, all of it. Look, I mean, when, when Trump reads the word constitution, it's like he's translating it from a foreign language in the teleprompter. So let's not, you know, let's not take his teleprompter language too seriously here. But the other Republicans we saw yesterday, you know, they contemned it, but gently. The simple thing to do is say, this is disgusting, yes. un-American, and disqualifying for anyone who wants to be president. Well, they That's know it's disqualifying because it. the most recent midterm showed people rejected candidates who mm. followed this path and style of rhetoric. But it's not even because it's bad politics. It's because it's the opposite of anything resembling patriotic principle. You know, use a great phrase, by the way, which I love, conspiracy patois. I mean, it, you know, you can say this is a dog whistle, but it's not a dog whistle. The, the Bulwark had a great article over the weekend that said Donald Trump takes the Constitution Fifth Avenue and shoots it. Mm -hmm. And nothing this is, is but, but what did he say about what would happen if he did that on Fifth Avenue? Right. No one would care. His supporters wouldn't care. And if you consider yourself a super patriot and, and you cannot support this. And, and, and that's the thing is a lot of folks will find a way to rationalize it or, or, or tiptoe around it, as we saw a lot of congressmen do. This isn't that. So what, what does this say about where we are? Maybe because last week, remember, we were here and, the, and slightly the week before saying, well, oh, you know, like. No, we're here every week. You okay. should say that. Okay, but. Right on. Gosh, you make my Monday morning. Constitutional. I and then stand we all corrected. Go, we will speak up. And then there's silence. So, yeah, we do well, it every The reason week. I was saying that is because we were talking about the dinner with Nick Fuentes, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. people mm -hmm. saying, well, I don't know. You know why? That was only a week. That was only a week. That was only a week ago. Right. That and then this. This. But remember, you're talking about people and as you're talking about the Washington media, as you're talking about Washington, the establishment. Right now, Trump is completely doubling and tripling down on the most hardcore of his supporters, many of which showed up on January 6th and overran the Capitol. Mm -hmm. So he is speaking directly to them about his intent next time around. And he is trying to maintain the same pitch the whole way, even as the candidates who have followed him down this path have been rejected by the voters over the issues of the economy, crime, everything. People have already spoken on this and they are done. Yeah, but let's be really clear then about why this matters and what the appropriate response is. If you're an elected Republican and you're tiptoeing around this because you're afraid you might lose a committee as, you know, a committee chairmanship if, if the Trumpists condemn you, you actually, if, if you are a constitutional conservative, if you are someone who wants to be a consistent patriot, putting, you know, principle ahead of partisanship, then the Donald Trump candidacy 
just got disqualified, and you got to have the courage and the conus to say so. Yeah, but if just you don't, the if you don't, things up to this point that could be disqualifying, the, the, it's littered with disqualifying comments. So then you're endorsing this, and that's the point we need to say. If you're not condemning this, you're de facto endorsing it, and that itself is disqualifying. My response is the same as Poppy's. What? <sighs> Like, I know. <laughs> Deep breath. Yeah. I mean, a montage will do that. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Audie, you'll be back a little bit later. John, Good morning, thank guys. you, as always. Um, coming up, we're going to get into that story we just previewed for you. Tampa's police chief really pulling rank and going too far during this traffic stop. What she's now on leave for and under investigation. Also this. Wow, Senegal's parliament, you see that looking more like a WWE smackdown. What led to the lawmakers brawling? My goodness. Welcome back to CNN this morning on this, this Monday morning. Here's what's coming up. A police chief pulls a do you know who I am card and now she has been placed on leave. All-out chaos after a male lawmaker hits one of his female colleagues. A backstory straight ahead. And the Baseball Hall of Fame just got a new member as other legends are denied. But first, this morning, the Tampa police chief has been suspended. She's now under investigation. This is after body camera footage revealed that she flashed her badge and asked for special treatment during a traffic stop. This was in November. Watch. Good evening. How you doing? Good. I'm Deputy Chicago, the Sheriff's Office. Stopped you because you're driving tag or uh, unregistered vehicle with no tag on it on the roadway. Yeah, we were. We went to the club. It was closed, so we went over and picked up some. Is your camera on? It is. I'm the police chief in Tampa. Oh, how you doing? I'm doing good. Okay. I'm hoping that you'll just let us go tonight. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll say. Uh, now that you say, I, I you look familiar, so. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I do. Okay. So, all right, folks. Well, uh, have a good night. Staying over here in East Lake Woodlands. Yeah, we live in East Lake Woodlands. Yes. Ah, uh, okay. All right. Well, it's nice to meet you. <laughs> so, I'm Deputy Jacoby. Okay. Same here, my friend. All right. Take so, care of yourself. All right. Sorry take care. To bother you. All right. No worries. No worries. Like I say, we have a lot of problem with the uh, the golf carting around here. You know, everybody. You know, we don't normally come out. We but never the club come was out. Closed, we never, so we never. Never. The Greek place to get some food. Gotcha. Okay. All right. All right, then we'll take care, and uh, it was nice meeting you. All right. <laughs> oh, all right. If you ever need anything, call me. Okay. Serious. All right. Appreciate Thank that. Thank you. Yes, ma'am, you're welcome. Thank so. you for your service. Thank you for yours. Thank all you. Right. So, take care. Let's go to CNN's Leila Santiago in, in Miami. Um, so I wonder if she's responding this morning. Yeah, she absolutely is. You know, that exchange was less than two minutes long in which she says, I'm hoping you can let this go. That's exactly what happened. But I want to point to the very first thing that you hear her say when she asks, is your camera on? And the deputy says, yes, because that's key in her response. Let's go straight to the statement that she gave, which we can read together in which she says, in hindsight, I realize how my handling of this matter could be viewed as inappropriate, but that was certainly not my intent. I knew my conversation was on video and my motive was not to put the deputy in an uncomfortable 
position. She has since apologized for what she called poor judgment and having that golf cart out there. And she's also said that she has called the sheriff's uh, office to offer to pay for any potential fines associated with that, Poppy. So then, I mean, she's off duty, right? Suspended, being investigated. What comes next in that investigation? Is it a real question of if she's going to have to step down? Well, she's now on administrative leave pending an investigation. So we'll have to wait and see what the results of that investigation are. But the mayor, let, let's let's see what the mayor is saying. Read that statement with you saying we hold everyone accountable no matter their position. And this behavior was unacceptable. Chief O'Connor will go through the due process and face appropriate discipline. Now the assistant chief is now acting chief. So much of this poppy is a wait and see. Let's see where this investigation takes them. Okay. Layla Santiago reporting from Miami. Thank you. An all-out brawl between lawmakers. Mm. Where this happened, we'll tell you next. And what sparked the chaos? My goodness. Plus, a rogue wave slamming into a cruise ship, leaving one dead and others injured. What we're now learning. That's straight ahead. Wait until you see this. This morning, just wild video shows the moment tensions boiled over. This is in Senegal's parliament, and there's an all-out brawl. This brawl on the floor of their parliament came after a male lawmaker from the opposition party walked over and slapped one of his female colleagues from the ruling party during a budget presentation. The fight was apparently started when one lawmaker criticized the idea of the country's president seeking a third term in office. But that is not what we should be seeing, to say the least on. Right on, Poppy. Well, this morning, an American woman is dead. Four people are injured after an enormous wave crashed into their cruise ship. Officials say it's called a rogue wave because it's greater than twice the size of the surrounding waves. CNN's meteorologist Chad Myers joins us now to break all of this down. Chad, wow. Can you predict things like this or no? Not really. That's why they call it rogue, right? Not at all. That's why it's called a rogue wave. Think about this. Think about two people doing cannonballs into a pool on the opposite sides of the pool. Well, the wave in the middle is higher than the waves that they made independently. That's kind of what's happening here. We have this two times factor where waves can crash into each other. Waves can also follow along the same path, but then add themselves together. Smaller waves coming in, and then all of a sudden you get a big wave when they all get aligned. This also can happen when you have wind coming in this direction and the waves get bigger. Think about what happens in a hurricane. Now, hurricanes don't have usually rogue waves, but they can, especially if another wave comes this direction and adds to that big wave. And that's exactly what happened here. The cannonball, I think the, the, the talking about that with one side and the other side, and all of a sudden the splash is bigger in the middle. That's exactly how rogue waves happen. Now, there can be currents involved. There can be other wind directions. There can be two separate storms sending waves in opposite directions. So a lot can go on here. Doctor. Yeah, thank you. the ocean can be very unpredictable. Thank you very much, Chad Myers. Yeah. appreciate that. And we have this just in uh, to CNN. A soccer star leaving the World Cup after his family home oh. is broken into. We're live in Qatar. Also, the new Harry and Meghan docuseries is set to release. What will it reveal about their relationship with Prince William and Kate? That's next. 
Okay, the Royals, a lot of attention being paid to the release of a trailer for the much-anticipated Netflix docuseries Harry and Meghan, which promises a more intimate look into the lives of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. I had to do everything I could to protect my family. When the stakes were this high, doesn't it make more sense to hear our story from us? And now you will. Joining us to talk about this, CNN anchors Max Foster and Bianca Nobolo. Max is also, of course, CNN's royal correspondent. Good morning to you both. Max, what do you think? I mean, they're much more free, completely free to tell their story now, right, given they don't have the royal responsibilities. How eye-opening is this? Well, we know nothing about it. That is literally <laughs> That's all we've had. <laughs> no one's seen it. I don't think anyone Thank you. We'll see you later. Coming up yeah. next. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> but isn't that the point? You know, everyone's nervous, I think. You know, not everyone, but people are nervous who, you know, have a stake in the royal family about what might be in it. And they're obviously going right back to, you know, before their relationship came out in public. Uh, they're talking about why they left the royal family. And also, I think the thing that might worry some people on this side of the pond is his, they speak to historians who will discuss the state of the British Commonwealth today and the royal family's relationship with the press. So what more damage could it potentially do to the monarchy? I think that's a big question. Mm. I, I can't believe how quickly, Max, I mean, we were you, you and I co-anchored their wedding. And it just oh, seems yeah. like just yesterday. And here we are just a couple of years later. And now we have this. I want to play this. Uh, this is from the 2021 interview with Oprah Winfrey and then get you guys to discuss it. Watch this. So we have in tandem the conversation of he won't be given security. He's not going to be given a title. And also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. There is a conversation. Hold up, hold up. There's Stop several right now. There are several conversations. There's a about conversation it. with you, with Harry. And so there, she was talking about her son Archie, and those were the conversations. But listen, there was a whole lot of uh, claims of uh, racism, and admittedly, by you know some royal watchers, as you are, there was some credence to it. Do you think we're going to learn more, and their story is going to be proven out in this series? Well, we've had quite a good sense, haven't we, of how they feel about their time under, you know, in the royal family and in that institution. And it's going to flesh that out. It's the true story, their real story. So I think we probably will, won't we? We will. And I would imagine, given that they're involving journalists, we understand, as well as historians in this documentary, mm. that the media coverage will be dissected. Don, as you mentioned, you know, there's been so much discussion about whether or not Harry and Meghan were, were hounded out of the country because of the racist or derogatory coverage in some of the newspapers. Now, a lot of journalists would deny that. I think the Press Gazette did a survey of British journalists and about 50% said that they detected racist undertones or you know, more obvious remarks towards the Duchess of Sussex in, in the press. So it will be interesting to see how big of a part that plays in the documentary. But, but in, indubitably, there was so much support for them too. Like, Don, you were at the wedding. 
Max, you were at the medic. I was there on dress watch, which was a bit of a weird choice for me, given <laughs> I'm a bit of a tomboy. I like cage fighting. But, um, you know, there was so much support and outpouring of love as well. Mm -hmm. So, like, there, there's obviously different shades of, of reality to, to this and discussion. And there was absolutely support and love for the couple, but obviously extremely difficult and damaging elements too. What about uh, at the Queen's funeral where you were there covering Don and, and you, Max, and, and you, you, Bianca, th this moment, I think we have some images to show. They, they th many people thought this might be a moment of reconciliation, especially for Prince William, Kate, and Harry and Meghan. What do you think? Well, you know, there was speculation that the Netflix documentary had been watered down as a, as a result of this sort of coming together. Um, same for Harry's book, which is due out in January. But I think now the impression we're getting is that nothing's been watered down at all. And this moment, you know, this was a big moment uh, visually, but behind the scenes, they weren't speaking much and they haven't spoken much since. And I do get the sense that um, this time, as opposed to the Oprah interview, Prince William, now as Prince of Wales, will be answering back to some of the accusations. Yeah. Do you remember? I mean, Max, that was breaking news. Like we when they were together. <laughs> yeah, we took it live. We're like, wait a minute, here they are. They're coming yeah. out yeah. because we hadn't seen them together, and they thought that this was, you know, an olive branch of some sort of cooling. Um, but we'll see if they talk about them in this documentary, in this series. Thank you both. Good to see you. Thanks for having us. Thank Thanks, guys. So as RSV cases surge across the nation, children's painkillers are in high demand. We'll talk about that. Also, same-sex marriage once again before the Supreme Court today. This time, the case involves a website designer and a question of free speech. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, excitement as the world at the World Cup as rising star Kaylin Mbappe leads France to the quarterfinals with a decisive victory over Poland. Mbappe now has nine World Cup goals altogether, which is as many as soccer great Lionel Messi and more than media darling Cristiano Ronaldo. Our Don Riddell joins us live from Doha, Qatar with more. Certainly a star. Oh, absolutely huge star. And of course, this is not his first rodeo. Remember, when he was just a kid, he played in the last World Cup, scored four goals on that occasion and led France all the way to the title. And this time he's got five goals in four games and he's playing like a leader out there. The French team has been beset with injuries. A lot of their top stars didn't make it to this World Cup. But with Mbappe out there at the age of 23, uh, he's making it look like child's play. I personally hope that the run soon ends. They're playing my team England at the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, of course, I'm not going to be cheering for Le Bleu, no doubt about that. <laughs> hey, I want to ask you uh, something, Don, one Don to another. Just moments ago, we, we just learned England's Raheem Sterling left the World Cup. What happened? Yeah, this is really worrying. Um, so Raheem Sterling is one of England's top stars. He's one of the biggest stars in the Premier League. And yeah, he missed the weekend's win against Senegal because he had to return home because his family were victims of an armed home invasion. His uh. family and young kids were at home when this happened. Um, the manager, Gareth Southgate, said he spent a lot of time talking to Raheem to, to kind of help him out. But in the end, he, he said he just wanted to go home because he's shaken and concerned about the well-being of his kids. Uh, there is talk that maybe he can return to the tournament, maybe play or be a part of the next game. But at this point, he's out of here. He's back to England. 
Good news is that the team managed to win without him, but you know the team obviously really concerned about him and his family. All right, Don Rydell, thank you very much. Appreciate that. CNN This Morning continues right now. Acknowledge or accept that uh, everyone's done it. So, yeah, I call them cowards. Now, I can say this this the individual that done this, it was targeted. It's tough to hear because we're going to continue on and, and talk about that a little bit later. But that was the sheriff of Moore County, North Carolina, after the power grid attack and what they believe was an act of sabotage. It's certainly a very yeah. strange and interesting story. Good morning, Poppy Harlow. Good morning. Good weekend. Good to see you. Yeah, had a great weekend. It's good, good to see you. I'm glad you guys could join us. Caitlin, by the way, is on assignment this morning. I want to tell you about the FBI. It has joined the investigation into those attacks in North Carolina. Thousands of people are waking up to another day in the dark. On the eve of the runoff for the Senate in Georgia, Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker are once again making their last pitch to voters. A FedEx driver has been charged in the kidnapping and killing of a seven-year-old girl in Texas. A live report is just ahead. It's tragic. And this morning, there are signs and inflation is starting to ease. But are you feeling that relief yet? But first, as Poppy just mentioned, we're in the final countdown in Georgia's runoff election. Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock will face off against Republican challenger Herschel Walker tomorrow in the only decided, undecided Senate race of 2022. And the stakes are really, really high. Voters will decide whether the chamber remains a 50-50 split or if Democrats secure a true majority. Let's bring in now CNN senior data reporter Harry Enton. Harry, good morning to you. So let's first start explaining to our audience what Democrats, what it means for Democrats getting 51. Yeah, Don. So, I mean, look, either way, Democrats are going to have the majority. But why do they want 51 seats as opposed to 50? What are the advantages? So basically, I outlined three different reasons. Okay, number one. It lessens the chance of a tie. Why is that important? Because essentially a tie in a committee requires a discharge vote for the full Senate. This slows down things. And obviously, if you're trying to rush through a bunch of nominations, judicial nominations for the lower courts, you want to get as many of them through as possible, as fast of a manner as possible. So that's number one. Let's talk about number two. Okay, it's easier to keep a coalition together, right? Right now, the wings of the party have a lot of power because if Democrats lose just one center on a vote and Republicans all stay together, it means Democrats don't have a majority. So essentially, if you have 51 seats, it means that the wings, either the moderates or the left's wing, have less power. And also you can lose a senator to say a pet cause that they may have on some particular issue. Number three, I think this one's rather important. Someone can actually miss a vote, right? At this particular point, if all the Republicans stick together, you basically have to rush in Kamala Harris, the vice president, in order to break that tie. If, in fact, you have 51, Harris doesn't always need to be on standby because you can get a majority with just your senators. And the other one is that, look, if let's say, God forbid, a senator gets sick or is indisposed for some reason, you can still have a majority even if one senator has to miss a vote for any particular reason. That's why President Obama was saying, stumping for Warnock, you know, it means so much, just one extra seat. We know like 1.89, is that right? Million people have voted early in this runoff in Georgia, but still a lot yet to vote tomorrow. What's the state of the race one day before the primary? Yeah, so, you know, look, at this particular point, you would rather be Warnock 
than Walker. Why? Okay, if you look at the general election result, even though Warnock did not, in fact, get a majority, he still got more votes than Herschel Walker by about a percentage point. If you looked at our poll last week, what did we see? We saw that Warnock was plus four. So it was a tight race, but Warnock with an advantage. And you were speaking about that early vote, right? It's down overall compared to the general election, but it's less white, it's younger, and those voters that have cast a ballot so far are more likely to have voted in Democratic primaries in the early vote period for the runoff than the general election. So right now, you'd rather be Warnock than Walker, but still, it's too close to call. Thank you very much, Harry Hinton. Appreciate that. And make sure you stay tuned for CNN's special live coverage. It starts tomorrow, 4 p.m., Eastern. Well, the manhunt is underway this morning over an attack on a power grid in North Carolina. The FBI is investigating this. It's a criminal investigation because this attack left more than 35,000 customers without power. Still, since Saturday, two energy substations were damaged by gunfire Saturday night in what is being described as an intentional and targeted attack. Some people there could be without power until Thursday. A state of emergency is in place and no suspects have been named. No motive has been announced. What is going on here? Chief yeah. Law Enforcement uh, and Intelligence Analyst John Miller joins us now. I found this bizarre and troubling, and we can get into their questions about potential domestic terrorism. What is your assessment this morning? Well, first of all, we've seen this before. Um, the first time this came up was 2013 in a place in the Medcalf plant in Coyote, California, pretty rural, targeted attack, over 100 rounds from sniper positions, fired over a period of something like 40 minutes, took out 17 transformers, did $15 million worth of damage. But Poppy, in that one, they were able to kind of reroute power to other stations, not go through a big blackout, um, but it took weeks to repair. And because of that incident, uh, we in the New York City Police Department, our partners at Con Ed, uh, the Congress, the Department of Energy started looking at what is the security on the electrical grid? Made a lot of changes and recommendations. So this is the second one of these we've seen. The real question here is motive. Was it to take out the power station? Was it to deny um, power to a theater that was holding a controversial LGBTQ event that night in Moore County, where the theater was blacked out and they had to call off the show? Right. Um, we don't have that right now. Well, that was my question, is why? Because the local sheriff deferred those questions that you're talking about, whether this was an attack, um, there was a domestic terrorism um, attack saying, you know, we have to figure this out. So where is this investigation right now, and how do you figure that out? So, I mean, the first thing you're looking for is a communique. Um, if it has a political purpose, usually the person who's behind it wants to announce that and say it was us and it was for X. Uh, we haven't seen that yet. Yeah, but for the purpose of what? Why would someone do this? Just, just for chaos? Or is there, you know what I'm saying? Well, it's really interesting about the timing. Um, on November 30th, uh, DHS sent out a confidential advisory to law enforcement. So that's just a few days ago saying we are in a heightened threat period mm. for domestic violent extremists. A. B. Targets will uh, likely include... Um, LGBTQ events uh, and targets, uh, critical infrastructure, government targets. So this is already out there in the ether. Yeah. John Miller. <clears throat> Excuse me. John Miller choked me up this morning. Thank you. He does it to all of us. <laughs> Thank, Thank you very effect. much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Dad. Okay, this morning, uh, viruses. Your kids have probably had one or all of them so far this season. Flu, RSV, 
There's still COVID leaving many kids sick across the United States and parents like me are finding it hard to find medicine. Painkillers like Tylenol, Ibuprofen. Why is this happening? A statement from Kroger Pharmacy to CNN says at this time our inventory of children's acetaminophen, that's Tylenol, and Ibuprofen, that's Motrin, are constrained. Joining us now, our senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen spent an hour and a half last Wednesday walking through Brooklyn trying to find this. And finally, a pharmacist found some children's Advil, which I'd never seen before, in a box in the back. Hmm. That, how can that happen? I was, my son had a pretty high fever, and I was really worried. First of all, Poppy, I'm so sorry to hear that. Second of all, I hope you check the expiration date from that box from the back because uh, you never know. I should But have. that is bad, and that's what we're hearing at these kinds of stories. <laughs> We're hearing that kind of story from uh, Kroger, as you just said. Seattle Children's Hospital says that they're having trouble getting liquid um, acetaminophen and liquid ibuprofen. And here's the graph that I think will answer this question. This is hospitalizations, but of course it reflects sort of illnesses in general. You can kind of extrapolate. So the top red line here, that's hospitalization rates for people over the age of 65 from flu. We kind of expect that, right? I mean, that's who flu affects mostly is elderly people. The yellow line is the little ones. The yellow line is zero to four. And so those are some pretty high hospitalization rates, which means that there is uh, quite a bit of flu out there for children. Now, it's not horrific. There have been 14 pediatric deaths from, from flu so far this year. One is even too high, but 14 is not an incredibly high number compared to other years. One message I would get out to parents is do not hoard uh, children's Tylenol and Advil. A terrible idea. It will give you bad mommy and daddy karma for the rest of your life. Just get what you need, and most importantly, get your child a flu shot. I, I, that is good advice. Do not hoard. But I, you know, what was it? Six months ago, we had the baby formula shortage. I, I understand there were supply chain issues during COVID, uh, some lingering. But ha I mean, why is this happening, and when, and how will it be corrected? You know, it's not exactly clear what, exactly what's going on here, but certainly there are lingering supply chain issues from COVID. The FDA has come out and said, look, we can't tell a company to make more of a drug. We don't get to tell them what to mm -hmm. do. And they said they're watching this. The Biden administration has said they're monitoring these critical drug supplies um, very closely. But as we saw with formula, there was really kind of a limit to what the federal government could do. Hopefully yeah. we won't get to that point with these drugs, Poppy. Let's hope not. All right, Elizabeth Cohen, I will check the expiration date at 9.01 a.m. this morning after the show ends. And uh, thank you very much for the update for all the parents out there. Hey, Poppy, I want to ask, you, can you take adult and, like, break it in half? Uh, I don't think so, but I had to buy, it's kind of gross, but suppositories, right. right, for the kids. Like, that's what you use when babies can't drink. Because that's all, that's all, like, I can find, I don't think you can break it in half. Oh, my gosh. That's it was awful. scary. All right, thank you. We're moving on now. This morning, people in Wise County, Texas, are being encouraged to wear pink to pay tribute to seven-year-old Athena Strand. It comes as a driver working for FedEx is being charged with killing Strand after killing her from her, after kidnapping her, excuse me, from her driveway. CNN's Ed Lavendera live for us in Dallas this morning with more. Ed, Athena's mother is speaking out. What is she saying? Well, it's just a horrible, senseless uh, murder. And the mother of this young girl in a lengthy Facebook post wrote about her daughter's dreams of wanting to become a Viking princess. The kind of details that really bring this tragic story to life. 
A Texas community is left shattered. The city of Paradise, about 40 miles northwest of Fort Worth, is grappling with the tragic ending of their search for a missing seven-year-old girl. Last Wednesday, Athena Strand disappeared from the driveway of her family home, which prompted a massive hunt with nearly 200 volunteers alongside local law enforcement. Her body was found two days later after authorities received a tip. Investigators say a FedEx driver was making a delivery at the time of the seven-year-old's disappearance. The suspect is 31-year-old FedEx contract driver Tanner Lynn Horner, now behind bars and charged with capital murder and aggravated kidnapping. We do have a confession. It's one of the toughest investigations that I've been involved in um, because it's a child. Aiken did not indicate a possible motive and said Horner did not know the family or the child. In a statement, FedEx said, words cannot describe our shock and sorrow surrounding this tragic event. In a separate statement to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, FedEx Ground said the company contracts with independent businesses to help its delivery services, and the employees of those companies are subject to a criminal background check. Athena's mother, Maitland Presley Gandy, issued a tribute to her daughter on Facebook, writing, My princess was taken from me by a sick, cruel monster for absolutely no reason. Athena is innocent, beautiful, kind, intelligent, and just the brightest, happiest soul you could ever meet. And Donna, uh, the suspect is expected to make a court appearance later this morning in Wise County. It's a detention hearing. And the, those closest to this family say that uh, Athena's favorite color was pink. And as you mentioned off the top, people across Wise County encouraged to wear pink today. In fact, almost two dozen school districts there in Wise County have uh, recommended to students to wear pink in honor of Athena today. A horribly tragic and horrifying story. Done. Yeah, you're right about that. Thank you, Ed Levendero. We appreciate it. Now to a story first on CNN. The second gentleman, Doug Imhoff, will convene an anti-Semitism summit at the White House on Wednesday. It will bring together leaders of 13 different Jewish organizations. Imhoff is the first Jewish spouse of a president or vice president. White House aides say that the event takes on even more significance following a series of anti-Semitic comments from Kanye West, as well as uh, the revelation that the former president, Donald Trump, hosted West along with white nationalist and Holocaust denier Nick Fuentes at a dinner at Mar-a-Lago last month. If you've been to the grocery store or filled up your gas tank recently, you've probably noticed prices are starting to drop a little bit. The average, certainly with gas, the average for ga a gallon of gas is now $3.41. That's down more than 30% since the high this summer. It's actually lower than when Russia invaded Ukraine. That is on top of falling prices for food and used cars and housing and slowing inflation, at least for now, is what we're seeing. Let's bring in our chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, with more. I was, they were, Don was like, it's your read. And I was reading this to bring to you. <laughs> I was like, you're next, Bobby, you're so next. <laughs> I was actually paying attention. The Washington Post, uh, the, here's the first paragraph of their big, above the fold story on inflation. The price of gas is dropping like a rock. Chicken wings are suddenly a bargain and retailers are drowning in excess inventory. My groceries still feel a lot more expensive. It's too soon to declare victory over inflation. Okay. And I think the, the, the takeaway here is that inflation is moderating, and that is what we want to see. 
Um, for example, gas prices, best place to see that in gas prices. It's down almost below where it was a year ago. And that's real relief for people. You look at some of these other categories, chicken products, you're going to start to see promotions and discounts in chicken products because they've managed some of their supply problems from 2021 and their demand problems. And they've, they've got a hold of that imbalance there. Retail goods. I think you're going to see a lot of discounts and clearances into the end of the year for these big retailers who've been struggling to understand what people want to buy, apparel and, and furniture. This is the kind of stuff that you're going to get. Uh, pretty cheap. Used car prices are down, um, they're down sharply 15% since wow. January. New car prices still are a problem because there's such pent up demand for these new cars. They didn't have the right chips. But used car prices are starting to see some relief. And in housing and rent, it's going up, but not going up as quickly. That's why I don't want to declare victory, especially on that part of the inflation story. Yeah. Still going up, but not going up as quickly. So we saw last week the PCE, the Fed's favorite inflation gauge. If you look at a chart of that, it's clearly showing signs of, of peaking. That's interest rates. Those are going up because the Fed is trying to take control of, of inflation. But when you look at the inflation, uh, inflation chart, you can definitely see it's getting a little bit better. Or... Not as and bad. bad. <laughs> and that's that's really good. That's still the right direction. Yeah. I have never bought a new car in my life. I was always taught they lose a lot of money. You probably you have. No, no, no. I think I bought lose, one new yeah. car, but otherwise I All don't. All used because yeah. they lose so much value going so, off the lot. So. It's true. And I, I actually bought my lease. I had a lease from 2019. This math never, ever works for consumers, right? <laughs> nope. I bought my lease. That car is worth more three years old right, than it was the contract that I signed for really? it in 2019. Wow. wow. That's one of the only few consumer money moves you can make over the past three years that has been just a total slam dunk. I was shocked to have the price of cars increasing during uh, the pandemic. But nice. I got to tell you about the chicken wings as we were watching the, all the games this weekend, soccer and football. There was a lot of chicken wing demands because I watched in a chicken wing <laughs> Buffalo wing bar. You know, I will tell you, I will pay anything for chicken wings. The price goes up and I still pay. It is like, it is impervious to, price impervious for me. If I'm with it costs you. more, I'll pay for it anyway. I love my chicken wings. I'm with you on that. Thanks, Thanks Roman. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. So this morning, gay rights is once again taking center stage at the Supreme Court. We're live with a preview, plus a CNN report from the war zone. Where do you go, you we had to move down here from our underground live position when the air raid sirens went off and we're now tracking reports of potentially dozens of Russian missiles headed this way. More CNN this morning to come after the break. U.S. intelligence experts say fighting in Ukraine is expected to slow in the next few months, but... Not end, of course. Ukrainians are still bracing for new attacks on their energy grid as temperatures drop. Russian troops are focusing their strikes on the eastern Donetsk region. CNN's Will Ripley joins us now live from a bomb shelter in Kyiv, Ukraine. Um, listen, they're confident about, at least the U.S., that the fighting will slow over the winter. But I understand you had to go to safety this morning? Yeah, that's not necessarily the assessment here in Ukraine. Uh, and certainly what we are experiencing right now, we don't know what what exactly is happening. So let me just lay out what has been happening. We have a live position up uh, towards the top floor of this hotel looking outside. We heard the air raid sirens go off, followed by reports of potential incoming Russian, Russian missiles. We're talking about a, a potentially large amount, dozens of missiles uh, incoming headed in this direction. Uh, and so we uh, and all of our staff have moved down to this bomb shelter, uh, several stories 
stories underground. We're basically adjacent to an underground uh, parking lot. So it, they basically converted this area, but it's reinforced with concrete. It is safe for us to broadcast from here. Uh, and now we wait for information about what exactly may, may be happening because the last attack uh, that happened 12 days ago, Russia launched more than 70 missiles and the Ukrainians shot down more than 50 of them. They had an incredibly high success rate, but still around 20 of those missiles hit their targets. And those targets, unfortunately, the civilian power infrastructure, they've just been rebuilding, trying to get the lights back on, the heat back on for people across Ukraine. If indeed we are on the front end of another attack or if that attack comes later, it's very much bad news for families that are struggling with temperatures plunging here. In Ukraine, winter is coming. In the capital, Kyiv, the foreign minister warns snow won't be the only thing falling from the skies. We are anticipating another massive missile attack by Russia. Uh, and the goal of this attack is to bring total destruction to our energy system. Crews are racing to restore power. These tents set up by the government, a badly needed break from the bitter cold. At this fast food place, braving below zero temperatures at the outdoor grill keeps the doors open when the lights are off. Some customers said they only want to come when there's no power because the food tastes so much better. We're just Ukrainians, she says. That's our secret ingredient. Another secret for surviving dark times, candles, a good cry, and prayer. When you come here, what do you pray for? We pray for peace, for the war to be over, she says, describing the hardship of life without electricity. But then I come here and remember how much time we spent hiding in basements. Hiding from Russian soldiers who occupied and terrorized their town, Bucha, the site of what Ukraine calls unspeakable war crimes. If you didn't know what happened here, this could be any church in any quiet Kyiv suburb until you look closer and notice the bullet holes and this cross marking a mass grave for more than 100 men, women, and two children. Like five of Vera Goychuk's neighbors. What did it, it was sound? a cluster bomb. A cluster bomb. A cluster bomb. Bullet holes in her children's bedroom windows. After living through the hell of the Russian occupation, she can handle living without power. And the, what is the real problem is there is no electricity, we don't have any connection. So I have kids and if something wrong, I cannot even call to the hospital and uh, call emergency. She tells me when the power goes out, she loses cell phone service and internet. But then... I Oh my God, it's a miracle. Is that the lights coming on now? Yes, <laughs> yes. So the first the place she goes, this is my the kitchen. Coffee, that's your number one yes, priority. Yes, it's, it's my, my number one. She's grateful for the little things in life. It's a moment of happiness. Grateful just to be alive. That's it. And you can understand the sentiment when people are living for the last nine months under the constant threat of Russian missiles raining down on their homes. They hear the air raid sirens. They go off so much. A lot of people are really immune to it. But uh, this time, uh, given all of the reports that are coming in about what may be happening here, uh, a lot of people here in Ukraine hiding in their basements, wondering if the lights are going to be knocked out and when they're going to be able to do things that we take for granted, like have a hot cup of coffee at their house in their kitchen. Will Ripley, live in Kiev for us this morning. Thank you very much for that.
You know, it is a debate across America. Should black Americans receive reparations for the sins of the past? Some states and cities starting to make it a reality. The conversation is next. Also, in a significant move, why Apple plans to shift some of its production out of China and it's accelerating those plans. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Coming up, the Supreme Court, the justices, will hear arguments today in the case of a website designer who refuses to make websites for same-sex marriages because of her religious belief. We'll take you inside the high court for that. We are also hearing for the first time from the surviving roommates as the killer of four University of Idaho students remains at large this morning. And Paul Pelosi was there last night in attendance at the Kennedy Center Honors, his first public appearance since being brutally attacked in his home. But first, this is a very interesting debate that America is having right now, whether descendants of slaves should be paid reparations. Well, today, Providence, Rhode Island is taking a key step in releasing funds for its program. The city's mayor approved a $10 million budget plan just last month after more than two years of research. The program does not include direct cash payments to descendants of enslaved people. We'll talk about that. Instead, the money will fund initiatives aimed at closing the racial wealth and equity gaps, including investment in investments in minority-owned businesses. Some states and cities are considering other ways to tackle reparations. California, for example, has a task force looking into whether to handle the funds like Providence or to give direct payments to eligible individuals. A member of the group told the New York Times, we are looking at reparations on a scale that is the largest since Reconstruction. So the massive effort just after the Civil War to reorganize Southern states uh, and integrate newly freed and enslaved Americans into society. So then how do you articulate this? How do you put it into perspective? How do you calculate and pay rep- reparations? And who would, exactly would be eligible those are massive questions. Experts have tried to estimate the amount, the amount of money enslaved people should have been paid, but the numbers, they vary widely here, okay? They go as low as uh, $17 billion to as high as almost $5 trillion, but the most often quoted figure is even higher at $97 trillion. That said, documentation of ancestry can be incredibly difficult to find. So it is a problem if reparations are limited to descendants of the enslaved. Some argue that limiting reparations to the descendants of, descendants of enslaved people ignores the weight systemic discrimination has had on black wealth in the aftermath. Now, according to the Brookings Institute, the median wealth of a white household in 2020 was about $188,000. That is 7.8 times more than the average black household at about $24,000. In 2019, the home ownership rate for white Americans was about 73% compared to 42% for black Americans. And that is before even discussing whether reparations are more effective as direct payments or as investments available to black communities. It's not as simple as just giving a check. Uh, We have to also look at reconstructing systems so that we have equality of opportunity. There's so much that goes into the concept of reparation. How does the total landscape change? That's that's really my question. And uh, you remember the old word tokenism, and I don't think this meant to be that at all. I'm not saying that, but it could turn out to be that. 
Hmm. So with me now, Shinjirai Komanika, Assistant Professor of Journalism in the Arthur L. Carter Institute of Journalism at NYU, and senior political commentator Errol Lewis, a, a columnist at New York Magazine and the host of the You Decide podcast. So good to have both of you on. Thank you very much. Good morning to you. Good morning. I'm kind of surprised that we're even at a point now where we're discussing this as something that is seriously happening. What say you, Errol? Well, I think it's, it's long overdue, obviously. And it's really fascinating to see what the, the results of the George Floyd protests have brought, because that was really the spur, I think, for this latest round of uh, coming to terms with it's so many different institutions and jurisdictions are trying to sort of figure this stuff out. You have places where it's relatively contained, like Georgetown University, where they had, in the 19th century, sold off 272 enslaved people to pay off some debts. And they now have said that the descendants of those particular people can go uh, tuition-free. And they're going to put some money into a fund for them as well. That's relatively contained. Then you have these broader questions, like what they're grappling with in Rhode Island and in California. It raises really interesting and important questions. And so whether it's at the lower end of just, you know, Uh, placing a marker, renaming a street, taking down an offensive monument, or at the higher end of actually trying to calculate uh, financial reparations. It's a long overdue conversation. Well, it is interesting because the conversation is not more around. There are still people who are saying, no, it shouldn't happen. This should never. It's not. But this is a conversation about how you do it because it's actually happening at Chindurai. Look at the the questions. Respond to that. I got another question for you. Well, one thing I want to say is, look, I understand why this issue is people say it's a divisive issue, Right. right? I mean, you know, Everyone has to work hard to get what they've gotten. But I think not enough people are aware of the way when you look at those discrepancies that you named, the discrepancy in median household income. You can when you put look that at, back up. Home ownership for white yeah, Americans, 73%. Yeah, when you look at home ownership, um, the report yeah. identifies that um, predominantly white school districts get $23 billion more than uh, you know, other kinds of districts. These have something to do with history. So I think the, the thing that a lot of advocates for this say is that it's actually the inequality that's divisive, not the efforts to repair it. Explain that. What do you mean? Well, you know, it's hard for many people who are still feel like they're doing ongoing harms. You know, the report, and I hope people actually go to the report, by the way, because this is one of those areas where I think it's very vulnerable to misinformation. So I hope people actually go and read the report. And one of the things that they say is some of these harms, the inequality, things to do with, you know, uh, segregation and housing are ongoing. And, you know, I think that it's hard for people to feel like they have a real stake in America, like this country's moving forward on democracy if we're not addressing some of those harms. Uh, Let's talk about this, Errol, because you mentioned it before. The the questions are whether there should be direct payments as opposed to programs. So how do... What's the decision here? How do you decide which is better? I think you have to go case by case, jurisdiction by jurisdiction. You know, there are remarkably good records. If you want to find actual descendants of enslaved people, it's not all that hard. My sister Ellen, who's watching now, is our family historian. She's traced in our side, on my mother's side, down to a particular county in North Carolina to a particular plantation. If you look at the 1860 census and the 1870 census and the 1880 census, there's a lot of information about who was was enslaved. And so if you wanted to go that route, you could. Uh, If you wanted to do something broader, it starts to get complicated. It gets remarkably complicated very quickly, Don, because if you wanted to sort of uh, develop an area, well, what about gentrifiers or others who happened to be living there who had nothing to do with any of this, who, you know, literally got off a boat, you know, 90 days ago, and they start to benefit from, from some of that. It starts to get really complicated, and it was complicated right from the very beginning. In 1865, it was as clear as possible when General Sherman issued his special order saying we're going to take, you know, 400,000 acres and give it 
to people right now who had been enslaved, even that got wrapped up in controversy politically and was canceled before it could be implemented. But we've done complicated and controversial things before, is the old saying, right? The cliche, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. These are things that we can figure out. But here's the thing, the, the questions about who should be, by the way, you said your sister's Ellen? Yes. Right. It's, those records aren't always available because I've had my ancestry traced and you, sometimes you need, you know, a Henry Louis Gates, someone who can mm. dig into this and go back and find it, yeah. Yeah, right? To go yeah. back and, and dig into it. But the question is about who should be eligible. For example, the California Commission narrowly voted to suggest that only descendants of the enslaved black people were eligible. That's difficult. Talk about yeah, that. Yeah, this is a really complicated aspect of this because there are some specific kinds of harms that certain groups of people have experienced, and we want to make sure to address that. I mean, I think one thing to look at is that this should, we should think of this as a beginning. To Like, as you mentioned, I mean, for the first time, we're really talking about repair in a serious way. And I think that there's different kinds of claims that different groups might have when you really look at the facts of who has built America. And, and you know, again, my colleague Rachel Swarns, who talked about uh, the, the Georgetown stuff also said it, current institutions like, you know, uh, insurance companies are still benefiting. So there has to be a way that we can sort of work through these details. Well, and, and lots of Fortune 500 companies and beyond and universities who benefited on it. So my question to you before I let you go, Errol, of course, politics. That's what you cover so well. What does this mean sure. for 2024? Well, look, uh, the, the fact that the initial ask, which was for just to do the research, that was controversial, right? John Conyers introduced a bill every, in every Congress, and it never got passed, and it's never been fully implemented. But the fact that individual uh, jurisdictions, different counties, institutions, states, are starting to look. They're ordering insurance companies to start producing some of the old policies and the property records uh, to try and find out what we can. I think the politics of that is kind of where we are now. But any polling on it shows that it is wildly unpopular with white Americans, very popular with black Americans. No surprise there. And there we go. Divided again. Thank you very much, Ginger. Thank you, Errol. I appreciate it very much. Straight ahead here on CNN This Morning, same-sex marriage is once again going before the high court. And that's right. I'm Jessica Schneider here at the Supreme Court. The justices are here set to hear that major case concerning gay rights and free speech. I'll tell you how it might change the way some do business and how they could actually shut out some customers. This morning, the Supreme Court is taking up a really significant case. This is a major case over LGBTQ rights and free speech. It is brought by a Christian graphic artist who makes websites who says she it violates her faith to make wedding websites for same-sex couples. Our Jessica Schneider is live at the Supreme Court with more. Jessica, good morning. Such, such a significant case with a very different makeup of the court since the last time they heard a similar case. That's exactly right, Poppy. The Supreme Court here today and in, uh, in the coming months here, they could really determine whether certain businesses can refuse to serve same-sex couples. As you referenced, it was just four years ago that the Supreme Court actually sided with a Colorado baker who refused to make wedding cakes for same-sex couples. That case, though, was on very narrow grounds. It only applied to that baker. This case, however, could turn out to be much more broad, and it could really change the way people do business. Gay rights is once again taking center stage at the Supreme Court. At the same time, Congress is poised to pass legislation ensuring federal benefits for same-sex couples. As amended, 
has passed. And requiring states to recognize gay marriage. But while Congress is expanding gay rights, some court watchers worry the conservative majority at the high court could roll back protections. Compared to where we were as recently as four, five, six years ago, I think this is a court that's going to be far less sympathetic to gay rights issues. This morning, the court will consider whether certain business owners can refuse to work with same-sex couples. It's a case being brought by Colorado website designer Lori Smith. The state of Colorado is forcing me to create custom, unique artwork expression, communicating and celebrating a different view of marriage, a view of marriage that goes against my deeply held beliefs. Smith openly declares on her site that she is selective about the website she'll design, and she wants the Supreme Court to rule that she does not have to comply with a Colorado law that prohibits businesses from discriminating against same-sex couples. Her lawyer contends it comes down to Lori's role as a creator and free speech. It's about whether the government can use the power of law to force Americans to say things that they don't believe. But advocates on the other side argue if business owners like Smith are allowed to decide which customers they can refuse, any number of groups might ultimately be discriminated against. You're going to have a, you know, the Protestant baker who doesn't want to make the first communicate. Um, do you want to have the school photographer? who has their business, but they don't want to take pictures of certain kids. Mary Bonato argued the case in 2015 that ultimately guaranteed the right to same-sex marriage nationwide. Right now, there are no cases pending before the Supreme Court that could put that right in peril, but nothing is stopping opponents from trying to get a similar case back before the court where they could find a welcome audience. Justice Clarence Thomas, for one, urged the court, as part of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, to reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including the same-sex marriage decision, saying the court has a duty to correct the error. Justice Samuel Alito did stress that nothing in his majority opinion overturning Roe should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. But Justice Thomas's words were foreboding for gay rights advocates who have heard from a flurry of panicked couples. It was an avalanche of questions. I mean, there are a few things more precious to people, if anything, than their family. And the idea that suddenly your family could be destabilized now, again, there is currently no case before the Supreme Court that would eliminate that nationwide right to same-sex marriage. But of course, Poppy, there is a lot of fear given the fact that just a few months ago, the court did overturn major precedent with that Dobbs decision yeah. overturning Roe v. Wade. Poppy? Jessica, I'm so glad you did that story to really explain to people what's at stake here. I mean, the ACLU is saying if the web designer who you interviewed, Lori Smith, in this case prevails, they say, quote, we will live in a world in which any business that has an ex expressive service can put up a sign that says women not served, Jews not served, black people not served, and claim a First Amendment right to do that. And Colorado's attorney general, right on the other side, says, look, if you open up your doors to the public, you have to serve everyone. What I think is different this time, is it not, is it in the last case four years ago, the court actually didn't decide on that core issue. But I wonder if it will now. That's exactly right. It was a very narrow decision last time, finding for that Colorado baker. But the court didn't, didn't decide that broader issue as to whether uh, these anti-discrimination laws that exist in many states, not only Colorado, whether by making businesses serve all people, they could potentially violate someone's free speech rights. In this case, Lori Smith says, look, I'm a content designer. I'm essentially endorsing messages. That's why I don't want to create these um, websites for these same-sex 
same-sex couples because it violates my free speech. We'll see if the court seizes on that argument today, Poppy. Could change so much, whichever way it comes down. Jessica Schneider at the High Court. Thank you. All right, so we're going to take you next inside of fans only. Only fans, I should say. Where sex sells. But what is the cost and the stigma for those involved? Audie Cornish is here with a fascinating new episode of her podcast. Oh, I can't wait for that discussion. And here's a live look at the Mauna Loa volcano eruption as lava creeps toward a major highway. Look, live on your screen right now. A live report from Hawaii's Big Island straight ahead. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Okay, so it started out as a subscription-based website for celebrities and creators to make money for their content. Now, partly because of pandemic lockdowns, OnlyFans is a big moneymaker for adult creators. It is the latest episode, in this latest episode, I should say, of her CNN podcast, The Assignment. Our Adi Cornish uh, speaks to people who have made OnlyFans their career. It's almost like you bite the bullet when you decide to do anything like this, I think. You sort of go, Absolutely, I yeah. know what people are going to think about me. I know mm-hmm. what they're going to say. And you sort of, you weigh up the pros and the cons. And you, exactly. And you make the jump and just hope for the best. Okay, so CNN anchor and the host of The Assignment with Adi Cornish. Adi Cornish joins us now. Thank you. This is fascinating because, listen, people have their idea about what OnlyFans is. But a lot of them turned a lot of people or creators turn to OnlyFans, and this became their, during the pandemic, their only source of income, and it's working for yeah, a lot Yeah, we should say OnlyFans is a little bit of a glorified payments processor. That what makes it different. You can actually monetize your relationship with your audience. And so you can have an OnlyFans for your gardening or whatever, right? It doesn't necessarily end up having that sort of public uh, face. Um, but remember, during the pandemic, unemployment surged upwards 13%. It fell down to only like 7% by the end of the year. There were a lot of people out of work looking to make money. Our two guests in our show were two of them. One was a health worker in the UK, um, and he talked about barely making ends meet while also just being a health worker in the pandemic and how kind of hard that was. And the other person had worked in retail before they got into this business and they lost that job. And then during the pandemic, um, they also embraced using OnlyFans in particular to essentially sell pornography. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because when I said people have their ideas, but it's Mostly. Is it mostly a sex site? Is it? Uh, it's become very popular, a kind of uh, pop culture shorthand for that. Certainly when you have artists like Cardi B, et cetera, a Bella Thorne, who kind of made a lot of money, just uh, sort of implying um, that they're adjacent to the sexual content. And I think that's actually what made me want to get into it is the idea that like this is porn adjacent. Right. And then it becomes sort of sex work adjacent. Mm-hmm. And the implications for that are actually quite serious because in 20. 18, there was a new law that said that um, providers, online providers, could be held liable um, for things that appear on their sites. So this was FOSTA-SESTA. It was supposed to attack um, human trafficking. But that it didn't dis, uh, sort of make a distinction between consensual or non-consensual or this work or that work. So someone who doesn't think of themselves as a sex worker could easily find themselves um, under, I guess, what would be called financial discrimination or penalty from our financial system. I loved this episode because as you do so well, it made me think about this in a different way. And 
you humanize many people that I think some would say, well, this is dehumanizing for them, even though it's their choice, okay? But I love that you really got deep on the social penalty and the cost analysis of what it, if people make this choice so much ahead in their life, they feel like they will be excluded from. Can yeah, you talk about that? Yeah, they're very aware of that. I mean, both of them talked about the kinds of dreams they might have going forward. They're in their 20s that they feel like maybe they're locked out of being a teacher, being um, being a nurse. The idea that one of them said people will see you as a person who can't be around children, can't be around the vulnerable. And I think there are implications for that in this era when there's so much sexual content online generated by us, the users. Yeah, it was a great lesson. Thank you, Adi. Thanks, Adi. Appreciate it. You can listen to this latest episode of The Assignment with Adi Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you then. This morning continues right now. Wow, my how the time flies. I just don't mean minutes. It I is, mean, it it is, is now the 8 a.m. hour. I know, it's now the 8 a.m. hour. Good morning, everyone. What I'm saying is it's December 5th already. The holidays are upon us. By the way, Caitlin is on assignment, and there's a whole lot to get to. Good morning to you. It's good, good morning. To be here with you. So let's catch you up on the big five stories uh, that's happening this morning. A manhunt underway in North Carolina after a power grid is deliberately targeted and attacked. That's according to police. Right now, more than 35,000 remain without power after gunfire left two substations damaged. This was a terrible act, and it appears to be an intentional, willful, and malicious act. And the perpetrator... Uh, will be brought to justice and prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And last night, Paul Pelosi making his first public appearance since he was brutally attacked with a hammer in his home in San Francisco this fall. He attended the Kennedy Center Honors last night with his wife, the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The final push as Georgians head to the polls tomorrow for the Senate runoff election. More than 1.8 million people have already cast their ballots in early voting as the Warnock and Walker campaigns work to sway those who are undecided. We are on verge of victory. But I don't want us to do the victory dance before we actually get into the end zone. We just got to get out and vote. It's time to have our voices heard and our vote counted. So quit making a complaint. Not what we need to do. Get to the polls. We got to vote. Also, Iran's attorney general says the country's mandatory hijab law is now under review. But I should note the Islamic Republic law requires women wear one. He also said that Iran's morality police were in charge of enforcing that had been dismantled. But many state media sites deny those comments. Several explosions have been reported in the city of Zaporizhia, Ukraine this morning. Two have been, people have been killed and multiple injured. This as Ukrainian Air Force officials say Russia launched a missile attack toward Ukraine. No strikes have been confirmed yet, but CNN teams in Kyiv have reported hearing air raid sirens. So when we get back now, we're going to begin with the North Carolina power outages. Let's go straight to CNN's Whitney Wild, live for us in Moore County, North Carolina. Whitney, thank you very much. We know the power, uh, there have been issues with the power. Uh, you couldn't, you know, get your report on live earlier. So what is the latest there right now?
Well, right now, there's still very little power. If you look at the Duke Energy Power Map, it looks like most of the power outages are concentrated right here where I am in Aberdeen, North Carolina. Uh, more than 10,000 people without power here. And then as you spread out between Aberdeen and Carthage, North Carolina, if you're familiar with this area, uh, it, it's around, at this point, uh, around 35,000 people who are out of power. Uh, Don, it's, it's cold here. The temperatures were below 30 overnight. There's frost on the ground, so this is a severe situation here. This investigation continuing to unfold in earnest. Law enforcement saying that this is an all-hands-on-deck situation. The FBI is involved, as well as the State Bureau of Investigations. Right now, the big questions that we don't have answers to are what type of firearm was used, how many rounds were fired, if the two attacks are collect connected by ballistic evidence. Those are the major questions. Investigation-wise, we just don't have answers for right now. Uh, here's the weird thing, though. Uh, when you look at what happened, at one of the substations, there's a gate that was taken off the hinges. Uh, so it, presumably someone was able to take that gate off and then get close to the substation. A lot more questions about how they actually pulled off this crime. Back to you. All right, Whitney Wild, thank you very much. Also this morning, we are hearing for the first time from the surviving roommates from one uh, from the home, I should say, where four University of Idaho students were murdered. Those roommates have written letters remembering their friends, sharing their sadness. It has been more than three weeks since this attack and police still have not made any arrests or released a motive. Our colleague Natasha Chen joins us now this morning. Uh, what did the roommates say? As I understand, I believe it was their pastor who read them to the public. Yeah, Poppy, this is the first time that the two surviving roommates were publicly identified, and that was during this church service on Friday, where the pastor read two letters, one each, from these two surviving roommates. And what one of them said really stood out to me. She was talking about her love for Madison Mogan that you see there on the screen. And she said Madison always told her that everything happens for a reason, but that she's really struggling to understand the reason for this. Here's the pastor reading more from those letters. I know somewhere Zanna and Ethan are together keeping each other company, watching us and telling us it's okay and that we have each other. Maddie and Kaylee, the inseparable duo, the two best friends that were like sisters. Maddie and Kaylee were like second moms to me. They taught me a lot on how to be a responsible adult, but also how to live life happy. Just heartbreaking messages to their uh, deeply loved friends that they lost, Poppy. And the father of one of those who was murdered is speaking out. Uh, what more did we learn? Right. The father of Kaylee Gonzalez and her mother uh, spoke to Fox News over the weekend and talked about some of the details that we have so far not heard from police. Uh, so I did try to reach out to police to confirm some of this. But uh, to recap, he said that th their family, the Gonzalez family, has been asked to sign a waiver so that investigators can look into mail um, that was perhaps sent or, or uh, and then th that also he said the death injuries in his daughter Kaylee and in Madison, her roommate, uh, did not match. And it's mm. his belief that because of that, it could be that only one of them was targeted. But, of course, uh, we've heard very little from police about that. Yeah. Uh, at this point, the Gonzalez's uh, say that they're also lacking a bit of confidence in the investigation, even though they truly support law enforcement here. And they are now trying to raise money for a third-party private investigator, Poppy. Wow.
Well, you can understand, right? Parents want and deserve answers. And there have been sort of a lot of different messages from authorities in this case, to say the yeah. least. Natasha, thank you for staying on it. Thanks. In less than 24 hours, polls will open in Georgia in the final undecided Senate contest of 2022 between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. Voters on Friday were met with long lines and long wait times as the early voting period ended. Jason Coupe was one of those voters and described his difficulties in a tweet thread that went viral. You have to see this tweet. We're going to go through it for you. Um, nothing that voting w was much harder. Noting, I should say, that voting was much harder in Atlanta than when he lived in Chicago. He tweeted that he had to drive downtown because all the closest polling places had 90-minute wait times. He also had to pay $10 for parking. When he got to the polling place, he still had to wait 80 minutes. Once he got inside, he had to have his ID ready, fill out forms, and wait in a room for 15 to 20 minutes. And once he finally voted, he noted about half the machines were not working. And the last tweet, he posts a picture with his wife writing, if you are poor or disabled or whatever, good luck. That should have been easier. Jason Coupe joins us now. He is an associate professor at Georgia University. I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you very much for this. And because I thought that you, what you tweeted just epitomized the difficulty that people, what people have to go through. Talk to us about how surprised you were, how long it took, and, but, and were you furious? Were you, how did you feel about this? Hey, good morning, y'all. Thanks for having me on. I think, uh, so first of all, we um, uh, shout out to all of the poll workers who, uh, who helped that process. And I mean, those folks are really the salt of the earth. But, uh, uh, so we, we started out in the morning. Uh, we have been looking all week, uh, noting that the lines have been long all week. We have three young kids, and so we were trying to go at a time where we didn't have them to manage. Friday came, it was the last day of early voting, um, and we sort of expected there to be long lines. We looked at the app. Uh, everywhere that was within an hour's drive of us had uh, waiting lines, uh, waiting times of, of greater than the hours, greater than the hour. So we went to the, the line that was shortest, um, and when we got there, uh, we downtown, downtown Atlanta, we paid to park. Uh, we stayed in line for about, about 70 to 80 minutes, and uh, when we got there, we got a form that we had to fill out. I'm still not 100% sure what that form was. It was the first time I'd ever had to do that. We waited for about 20 minutes. Someone checked over that form. We showed our ID. Uh, we were given a, a, a card to go to a machine. We then voted electronically. We went through about five or six prompts that printed out another piece of paper that we fed into, um, into, into a machine. And so overall, door to door, the process took about, about two hours, which was uh, certainly surprising, uh, uh, even considering that the lines, we thought the lines might be a little long. That's crazy. Poppy and I are looking at each other whispering. Shaking that is heads. a lot. Before Poppy gets in here, I just want to ask you one more question. Almost 2 million people have voted already, and some might say that that is a success, that so many people were able to cast their ballot, Jason, in this early voting period. Do you think they're wrong about that? No, I mean, it's what's great about Atlanta, and I'm new here, is the energy around democracy. I think the challenge is it's always hard to know what would have happened if those costs were lower, right? And so we've got almost 2 million now, but in the city of Atlanta, We've got folks who are housing insecure, mm -hmm. lots of folks who maybe work a job that is paid hourly. Mm -hmm. We're getting that time off to stand in line for two hours may be difficult. Um, and if you can get it, it's costing you income, yeah. right? And so it's, it's great to see almost two million people voting, but it's also, it makes you wonder how many people are not, right? Yeah. Uh, because, of, because of the cost involved. And you have two kids, imagine that you have no, to, you, you know what I mean? Well, yeah, and I have 
look, I, I can, you know, afford to hire a babysitter for a few hours. No one should have to do that, and that's not the reality. For most people, this is why to go to the argument of a national holiday yeah, for, you know, Election Day so people can vote. And, Jason, your, your tweet thread got so much attention. Um, Gabe Sterling, who's one of the top election officials in Georgia, responded. And I just want to kind of go through his response and, and see what you think. So, so to, to your argument, he said, first of all, he said about voting, quote, it isn't complex. Cook County had 53 locations. Fulton received a reduced number of locations to 24, cutting their sites by 13. Um, what, what is your response to him saying, no, it's not as hard as you just described? Yeah, I mean, I can only speak from my personal experience, and again, not 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 as uh, as an employee or 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 in any other uh, aspect of of uh, my work in the state of Georgia. It really my experience in Cook County have been easier. Not just Cook County. I mean, I voted in in Michigan, uh, go blue. I voted in North Carolina. I voted in, in Georgia too, and this is the first time I've had uh, this long a wait. And so, I don't know why that is, or uh, or what can be changed. I just in our mind, my wife and I were just thinking. Uh, wow, if we if we could not afford to do this, um, uh, this this making our voice heard uh, would, would be harder. So, Jason, let me ask you. I lived in Chicago and I lived in Georgia, and there is a difference in voting. And now, you know, I live in New York. I've lived in a bunch of places, and you see the difference. So, then, what are your? I think it's great that we have you on because you are speaking for a lot of Americans, right? Then, what do you? What offer some suggestions about what you think could improve and how they could improve it? Yeah, so I mean, I'm not an elections expert. Uh, I, so from my personal experience, the big, the big thing that made my di my experience different on Friday uh, was signing that form. Uh, for hmm. whatever reason, it felt a little bit like I was at the DMV getting a driver's license, or or um, uh, it, it was that, that's where the bottleneck sort of seemed to be. Folks waited in line, but once you got to that form, you went in another room. Uh, they, they, there was some typing on the computer. I'm imagining they were looking us up. The information on that form was the same information that was on my driver's license and what is also on my voter's registration. So I'm sort of unclear about about what what role that that part of the process had. And, and I, it looked like, again, like not speaking as an expert, it looked like from my eyes yeah. personally, that's where the bottleneck seemed to be. Because there were unused machines that that may well have been used had folks not been bottlenecked through that that uh, through that form. You know, I would say just I just thinking how it's so different than what I've experienced here in New York. Yeah. It's so, so different where we don't have uh, voter ID. It was quick. I voted early here. And fast. Yeah, and, and, fast. and it's like just what's your address and they look on the paper and, and it's match, so different. Signature match and then you're, mm -hmm. you're on. Um, if I can, you know, we talk a lot about maybe, I don't know if it's intentional or non-intentional. That's not for me to decide. But there are people who are trying to improve the voting process, especially in Georgia, and they say that even if it's not obvious, there are suppressive efforts. Even, and even if a lot of people are voting, that doesn't mean that there aren't suppressive efforts or suppressive tactics that are going on. Do you think that this at all speaks to that, Jason? Uh, I. I'm new here, so it's it's uh, when we say suppression, it uh, starts to get into intent, and I, I don't I don't know. I just I just would say, experiencing that line, it looked like there are folks. Anytime we make rules about about a process, it selects certain folks in and certain folks out of that process. And so the big thing that stood out mm -hmm. to us when we were in line is that if you are disabled, if you are if you are poor, if you have lots of kids. 
uh, it seemed to me like I would have a harder time yeah. uh, justifying sort of paying the, the, the cost to, to, to vote. And so in a democracy, the benefit is supposed to be all the same. These are rights. These are not supposed to be alienable, right? And so uh, if the benefit is the same and, and focusing on the cost should also be the same too, right? And we should, uh, we should pay generally the same, the same kind of cost of our time, of our effort, um, uh, to vote, right? It's sort of what democracy, um, in my mind, is, is supposed to be. And so whether the intent is there or not, uh, we, let's hope, hoping we can get those costs yeah. now. It's at, the core of, it's at the core of democracy. It shouldn't cost anyone anything, by the way, to vote. And there are so many roadblocks. Thank you for bringing them to light, Jason. That was really good. Thank you for Thank the time. You, Jason. Thank of you. Course. Appreciate really it. appreciate you appearing. And straight ahead, the former president who swore an oath and wants to take it again is calling to terminate the Constitution plus our David Culver is live near the erupting volcano in Hawaii. That's right, Papa. You can see the morning lava glow behind me. It might be a bit hazy, so we've got a solution for you. We're going to give you a view like no other at the other end of this break. We'll see you. More CNN this morning to come after the break. So CNN is getting a bird's eye view of Hawaii's erupting Mauna Loa volcano and the spectacular lava show that you are seeing right now. This is live, right? Yeah, this is live. Uh, and it is closing in on a major highway there. Let's go straight to CNN's David Culver live for us on Hawaii's Big Island. So why don't you tell us what you're seeing there, sir? Good morning to you. Well, good morning, Don. Yeah, you had that live picture. That is pretty incredible to see. Fissure 3 is what it's called. That's the only active and stable flow of lava right now. And it's just behind us. It's that glow up there. But yeah, you mentioned that bird's eye view. So let's show you a view like no other. It is pretty incredible what we got to see. We are on the road before sunrise quickly realizing we can already spot our destination some 30 miles out. There you see it, that red-orange glow, Mauna Loa erupting. To give you a better view though, we go up in the morning dark. Paradise helicopters, Darren Hamilton, our pilot and guide, giving us rare access. Having flown in military hot zones, Darren even admits this is firepower like no other. What was it like the first time you flew over lava? Uh, it was a blast. It can also be challenging, especially with heavy fog or volcanic smog. So there you can see the gases from Fisher 3. Those acidic gases, dangerous if the concentration levels are too high. On the ground, officials closely watching the lava's potential impact on Saddle Road, the main highway that connects the east and west of the island. Erupting last Sunday for the first time in 38 years, Mauna Loa, the world's largest active volcano, is one of five that make up Hawaii's big island. And it's not the only one currently erupting. Neighboring Kilauea, also active, though no longer shooting lava to the surface like it did in 2018. We're on Kaupili Street, which is where my house was at, and it's that way, on the opposite side of the subdivision. Dorothy Thraw invited us to where her home now sits, 
buried under 60 feet of lava. You can see a metal streetlight fused into the rock. Four years after Kilauea did this to her Leilani Estates community, she still walks it as though she's on her old street with her old neighbors. When you have something like this, I assume you're all dispersed after that. Yeah, we lost that sense of community and it's what we lost in addition to the homes. Mauna Loa's eruption, an emotional trigger for Dorothy and others, forcing the trauma from Kilauea back to the surface. The 2018 lava flow wiped out more than 600 homes here, some untouched, but left lava-locked, an island within the island. Dorothy showed us this video she captured a few weeks back, trekking over lava rock, helping friends gather the last of their belongings from their home. The reminders of devastation here? Hard to miss. This was a home. Uh, they evacuated the second night, and I believe it went under the third night. And just took their home. Just took their home. And four years later, it's still steaming. It's still steaming, yep. And how long will it steam like that? Probably 30 to 40 years. How is it that you can still see beauty after so much loss? Because uh, lava is beautiful. <laughs> it's, a, it's Pele's creation. That's how the island was formed. That's how the island was built. An appreciation shared by Native Hawaiians, leaving offerings on Mauna Loa, and thousands of tourists and locals arriving past sunset just to witness the lava glow. Nighttime traffic backs up for miles. To avoid the congestion, let's get back to the skies. That's 2,000 to 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit or about 1,000 degrees Celsius. That's molten rock flowing like water which has already crossed one volcano road, power lines and all, a searing slice right through it. Incredible the heat you feel as soon as you get close to it. And, and look at this, the rushing flow, I mean, the river. You see the current of lava. Darren estimates it's moving 30 to 40 miles per hour. But this, the source of it all, I mean, there's nothing like this, just viewing from the top. That 30 to 40 miles per hour happening about 15 miles from us, way up there. Down here, Don and Poppy, it's moving at about 40 feet per hour, so much slower because it's fanning out, but still inching closer to the roadway. It's now just over two miles from that main highway. But it was interesting, overnight they had to actually shut down this portion of the viewing area because out here on the lava rock from past eruptions, there was an unexploded ordinance that was found. They think a possible grenade. This is a military training ground usually. So they're asking folks, just pull over. Don't walk onto the lava rock. But for that reason, we're keeping a bit closer to the roadway this morning. Wow. Yeah. Leave it to David Culver to give us the most remarkable view of the Poppy volcano. commenting on your story. I Live said, commenting on I your story. I was saying during was the running. piece, I said he's such a good writer. It was a great piece, David. Really Thank good. you. Thanks, David. Be safe, and we'll <laughs> see you soon. Guys. Thank you. Good team here. Thank you. So attacks underway this morning in Ukraine, and now two major cities are without power this morning. Plus, after weeks of protests, Foxconn is restoring production at the world's largest iPhone factory in China. But this comes as The Wall Street Journal reports Apple is accelerating plans to move some of that production out of China. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Coming up, Ukraine says Russia is currently launching missile attacks towards several cities as the winter begins in the war. Plus, 
Why Elon Musk has emerged as a hero to conservative Republicans, our numbers guy Harry Inton will break it down for you. And a beloved figure on Sesame Street has died. Bob McGrath was an original cast member. Ahead, we're going to speak to his longtime co-star and friend who played Gordon on Sesame Street, Roscoe Orman. But first, we've learned that Apple is accelerating its plans to move production out of China as protests and riots intensify in response to the country's zero COVID policies. That is according to a new report in The Wall Street Journal. And now Apple supplier Foxconn says it is, quote, gradually restoring production capacity at that sprawling campus in central China. Anger boiled over into those violent protests at the world's largest iPhone factory. Workers protested unfair treatment dirty living conditions, chaotic COVID rules, and much more at the factory. And video obtained by CNN shows a group of police in white hazmat suits beating workers with batons and metal rods. Analysts estimate this factory makes about half of Apple's iPhones. Let's talk about China and a lot more. We're happy to be joined this morning by New York Times columnist Nick Kristof. Of course, he was the New York Times bureau chief in Beijing in 1989 and won a Pulitzer for his coverage of the Tiananmen democracy movement in China. So thank you, and let's begin in China. Good to be with you. You have, having covered Tiananmen, having been the bureau chief perspective that very few do. How is what is happening in China now different? So these protests are maybe the most important since Tiananmen in 1989, but they are not the same level. I mean, they were in more than 300 cities, uh, and they were not repressed because there was a leadership vacuum, because there was paralysis in leadership. These have been you know, there was an immediate move to crush them and China's surveillance is better than ever. I think it's hard for people to see how these take off in the way that those at Tiananmen did. But, you know, they certainly do underscore the just the resentment that people all over China have uh, toward the and the bravery of some to speak out. One, uh, you know, without a mask speaking to our Selena Wang face, you know, covered, though, uh, last week, but because they have just reached the end of the rope. They've reached the boiling point. Yes. A lot of people. But uh, the government is already arresting people, is already detaining them, is calling. It has you know, great facial recognition systems. It's calling up people and asking them why they were out in the streets. And uh, people will pay a real price for this. You wrote about this in your column this weekend and, and you wrote China's zero COVID policy is synonymous with Xi. He owns it. The Chinese who denounce COVID lockdowns know they are criticizing Xi. So it speaks to the bravery that they have to do it. Do every single U.S. official on any news program is constantly asked about this and they're sort of towing the line in their statements. Anthony Blinken was asked about it a lot yesterday. Would it make a difference if the U.S. came out more forcefully in support of these particular protests, not just saying we always believe in the right of people to protest? I understand the caution of officials in siding with particular protesters about COVID policy. Yeah. But I think we can speak much more forcefully about the way China has repressed protesters, is arresting people for peaceful expression of their views, for trying to congregate, for expressing online comments. And I think we owe it to them. We owe it to democracy. We owe it to our values. And we probably owe it to our interests to speak out more about that kind of repression uh, in China and, for that matter, in Iran as well. Uh, Before we get to Ukraine, let's listen to what the Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, said when she was asked about the potential for war. Here she was. I think war is potentially possible because Xi Jinping now has absolute control in China. That was really startling to hear. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, um, she was talking, the context was she was talking about China and 
the United States? Um, look, there's, there's certainly been a lot of concern about a spark in the South China Sea or even more likely in the Taiwan Strait over the next five years. I think most people put that at maybe a 10 to 20 percent risk, but a real non-zero risk. And if you try to think of the most cataclysmic thing that could happen to the world over the next 10 or 20 years, that might be the most plausible tail risk that we have that uh, would be devastating to both countries, to the world economy. And the, to, to put the context more clearly, she was talking about the United States, China and Taiwan but we have heard what Biden has said now four times about what the United States would do, how it would respond should China invade Taiwan. And we have to be, I think, very cautious because on the one hand, U.S. expressing a willingness to back up Taiwan does perhaps create a deterrent effect and reduces right. the, the risk that China moves on Taiwan. It may also increase the possibility that Taiwan's leaders, especially after the next presidential election, pursue a more aggressive policy toward independence and engage in provocative yeah. behavior. So there's a very fine balancing act that we have to pursue. Let's talk about Ukraine. Uh, you just came back from Ukraine. Your father grew up in Ukraine. We have a photo we'd like to show of you and your dad in 2014. This is the two of you in Ukraine. And then we also have this image of you interviewing a young man who was in a bombed out apartment building. And here's what you write. At a time when the United States is so divided, Ukraine feels the opposite. There's a passionate, uplifting, leveling unity here. And it is one reason Vladimir Putin may be in trouble. What did you see that we don't talk about enough that doesn't make the headlines? People in Ukraine are certainly suffering. Uh, they've you know, lost heat. They've lost electricity. Uh, in many cases, they've lost water. What maybe doesn't always come through is just the passionate determination of people to resist. It is not breaking their will. I talked to a young man who uh, on the front lines was shot. He lost his entire left arm at the shoulder. He now has a prosthesis. He is returning to the army to fight back. And, you know, his wife initially thought he was completely crazy. Yeah. After they got blackout, she said she understood why he wants to go back and fight with one arm. And I have to ask you about the women. You've got nearly 60,000 women in the Ukrainian armed forces. That surprised me. You know, Ukraine is frankly a pretty sexist, traditional country. And there are almost 60,000 women who have enlisted to go fight. Uh, the Ukrainian army didn't even have standard uniforms for women. And uh, yet now they're, they're making them. I talked to one young woman, a 26-year-old woman, whose uh, fiancé was killed on the front. And then she volunteered and enlisted. And I asked her, you know, what are you doing out here? And she said, um, they killed the man I love. I, where else can I be? Yeah. And, wow. uh, it, it, you know, that passion on the part of women, it is going to change Ukraine, I think, the role those women are playing. Thank you for bringing us these stories in your reporting, Nicholas Kristof. We appreciate Good it very much. You. Good to be with you. Also, I want to point people to this quickly, this annual holiday giving gift of little-known organizations uh, working to make the world a better place. We'll pull it up on the screen. It's KristofImpact.org, where people can see much more. There it is. Don. Thanks, Poppy. Thanks, Nicholas. Appreciate that. Coming up, Elon Musk has gone from a liberal hero to a conservative one. We're going to tell you what this morning's number is. Straight ahead. Oh, no. Not that song again. Please. Oh, oh. Who are the people in your neighborhood? In your neighborhood. 
in your neighborhood say who are the people in your neighborhood well i'm sure even oscar would love to hear that song from that voice one more time sesame street is a little quieter this morning as fans around the world remember one of the show's original cast members bob mcgrath mcgrath's family confirmed that he passed away peacefully at his home on sunday he played Bob Johnson on Sesame Street going back all the way to the pilot episode in 1969. He was on the show for 47 seasons, remained a part of the Sesame Street family after leaving the cast in 2017. He was 90 years old and leaves behind a wife, five children, and eight grandchildren. We are so happy to be joined now by co-star and longtime friend of Bob McGrath, Roscoe Orman. He played Gordon Robinson on Sesame Street. And Don, take it away because no, you were no. like almost in tears when he was coming up because here. Because of what, listen, for a lot of reasons, and a lot of folks too, what Sesame Street meant to me as a child. I mean, and still even as an adult. And you and Bob shaped my childhood. And I want to thank you for it. Well, thank you. Thank you for the, that compliment. Uh, it's, I'm still absorbing, you know, uh, the, the, the fact that he is he's no longer with us, but uh, it was, uh, uh, he was such an incredible uh, talent. He, he was, he was uh, uh, an original member of uh, Sing Along With Mitch. I don't know if you, you re that, that, that goes even beyond, or, or it was much earlier than Sesame Street, Sing Along With Mitch. And he also t toured uh, in Japan quite often. He learned Japanese, he right? He learned Japanese. He learned to speak Japanese. They were such fans. And yes, they were. Yeah. They were. They loved uh, ba Baba Marugala, or, or I forget how to pronounce in, in Japanese, but uh, yeah. yeah, he was a superstar in Japan as well. Wow. Um, but what a loss. Yeah. It, what a loss. You're right. I want to talk more about him. And do you think about... Um, in the 60s, I grew up in Sesame Street was three, I think, uh, it was mm -hmm. three years after I was born. Mm -hmm. And then you came along in the 70s mm -hmm. and you guys really changed people's lives. Were you and Bob, do you think you guys were aware of that as you were doing it? Because this was all like brand new television. Well, um, yeah, it, it didn't, uh, it wasn't long before we realized that Sesame Street was very special you know, and something very different than most children's shows. It would, I mean, they would yeah. play it in my... Nursery and element and um, kindergarten classes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you know what um, my mom calls and says about the kids? She's worried that what's on TV for the kids these days isn't nearly as good as Sesame Street. My kids are four and six, mm -hmm. and there's too much violence, even in some of the cartoons. And she, every day, mm -hmm. are Sienna and Luca watching Sesame Street? Are Sienna and Luca? I mean, that's the impact you had on Don's childhood, my childhood, yeah. what we want for our kids. And yes, they are, Mom. My kids yes. are watching the reruns. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, you know, uh, we, we raised our kids on Sesame As a matter of fact, all, all, all five of my children were, were on the show uh, with us. And, uh, you know, it was just such a wonderful, wonderful time. Yeah. What should we know about Bob? Well, Bob was um, uh, quite talented and quite, uh, you know, uh, uh, a force before Sesame Street. You know, he, 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 uh, he toured in Japan uh, uh, quite regularly and... Uh, uh, yeah, he, 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 he had quite an impact on, uh, you know, on the show. He was, as, as you said, an original member yeah. of the show, uh, along with uh, Loretta Long and a few others. Uh, but um, 
Yeah, he had such a wonderful, kind spirit, you know, and uh, and a great talent as a, as a singer. And he was he was yeah. a, 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 a member of Sing Along with Mitch. I don't know if that that goes way <laughs> before your time. I'm sure. One of the things he said in a few years ago that was a, one of his main takeaways from the show is how important it is. These are his words. Mm -hmm. Sesame Street taught him how important it is to listen to really listen carefully mm -hmm. to what your children have to say. Yes, yes. They're wise, aren't they, our kids? Yes, they are, they are. Yeah, there had never been a show uh, that, that targeted that kind of, you know, uh, information or, or ed education for, for preschoolers, you know, primarily. So uh, it was groundbreaking. And I was, uh, I just couldn't believe uh, that I was able to uh, join the, the company and be a, uh, a long, long time member of the show. Uh, what great fortune, right? I mean, oh, yeah. Uh, just incredible. I had no idea that I would be on a children's show. You know, I'd done some other, quite a few other uh, uh, kinds of uh, performance that uh, were not for kids. Uh, but Sesame Street um, was very special. I, I, there, there was nothing like it ever before. Well, Roscoe, we're so happy that you could come in yeah. and yeah. to remember your friend Bob McGrath, yes. 90 years old. 90 your years old. What a life. Sesame Street. And thank yes. you for what you do. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for, thank you. for having me. Yes. Thank you. Thanks so much. Coming up, Justin, there's a new clip from the Harry and Meghan documentary, uh, and we're going to talk about. It talks about, quote, pain and suffering. So this is just in the CNN. Netflix just released a new Harry and Meghan documentary trailer. Here it is. There's a hierarchy of the family. You know, there's leaking, but there's also planting of stories. There was a war against Meghan to suit other people's agendas. It's about hatred. It's about race. It's a dirty game. Mm, wow. also said that there was pain and suffering of women marrying into this institution. Harry continued to say that he didn't want history to repeat itself. Obviously, we're, well, history of losing his mother, Diana, yeah. and all that she faced. Mm -hmm. yeah. it's, uh, people are so interested in them. I think they, obviously, I know they garner more attention than, than William and Kate. So, it's brave to put yourself yeah. out there like that. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. Okay, thanks. We'll it's be back here <laughs> with Caitlin. We feel like we're missing an appendage, Caitlin. Tomorrow. Come back. See, her, see you all tomorrow. We'll see her. She'll be on the air tomorrow. You guys have a great day. CNN thanks Newsroom is now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. 
Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.